opening, opening your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. The origin of the proverbial expression, the proof is in the pudding, actually comes from the 14th century. I found that remarkable. It, it first appears publicly in William Camden's Remains of a Greater Work Concerning Britain, published in 1605. That is an old saying. Many language experts attribute the saying to the works of Cervantes in Don Quixote. Originally, it was stated the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And, and I think that's how I've always tried to explain that to somebody when they're like, what does that mean? The current version came about in the early 1900s, but what does it really mean? What does it really mean? Well, it's basically like this. If you're looking for a way to challenge somebody for a statement that maybe they've questionably made, if so, then you'll test them. You're going to test it yourself. Or we're going to say prove it by saying the proof is in the pudding. You say you're a fast runner. You say you're faster than light. Well, okay. Let's, let's see it. Let's see it. Let's see how you do you say you're really good at golf. I've heard people claim they have great, you know, they're great in golf. Well, well, come on, let's see it. It's not that I would challenge them in golf. So the results of, of you doing what you say would be verification that the statement was true, that the proof would be in the pudding, okay? You know, that actually could be actually a subtitle, I believe, of what Paul wrote here in chapter 3 of Colossians, beginning in verse 18. If you profess Christ, then the proof is how you live out the gospel in your everyday life. You know, Paul has given the principles of gospel living here in these verses 1 through 17. We've gone over some of those. Now he speaks to how believers are actually to apply those principles to real everyday life, how our union with Christ is to be manifested in various relationships of our life. This is Paul's pattern uh, in several places. You, You see it repeated in Romans several times, giving the doctrine and then giving examples of how that should look in your life. You, you see it in Ephesians uh, you know, particularly uh, in, in Ephesians, which is very similar, really, to Colossians, those first three chapters of uh, Ephesians' doctrine, and then the latter ones, is about living it out. It, we're going to see this in your life. This, we're going to have this applied, uh, applied to your life. So in Colossians 3, Paul had taught what it looked like to be a Christian and what that would look like spiritually. Okay, he's given the doctrine of all of that. So here he comes to what we might call the litmus test for all of that, where the rubber would hit the road, where the, where, where the proof would be in the pudding. The proof would be in the pudding. We can declare we are Christians. We can speak uh, of all of that, of all that, that has to be done. But how do you truly live out all of that in your lives? How do you live it out in your lives? At home, in your marriage, uh, in your family, 
in the workplace as a worker or even a master in the workplace. Paul lists three groups that we want to talk about this evening that Christians are part of usually in their day-to-day life. Those groups are marriage, family, and work. Many of us, most of us, are involved in those somehow, some way. So that's what he lists here of of looking for the proof being in the pudding. In each of these groups, he gives a subordinate and an authoritative figure in each one. Each one presents different challenges in their life. Each of those six types of people, there is a challenge to living out the gospel in real life. And those challenges are different. But each one is to set aside. They're to set aside the flesh and complete with the commands of God in their life for this is pleasing in his sight these are the actual nuts and bolts really uh, of the lives that most of us live in in these three different groupings Paul gives a simple statement a pinpoint wisdom to to really guide us to, to how a Christian should approach these relationships It begs the question, does the gospel work in my marriage? Does the gospel work in my family? Does the gospel work in my working relationships that I live in each day? These are those private areas that if you're suffering in these, and this is a true reality, if you're suffering in these, you're unlikely to voluntarily come from hell because pride in, in our lives. These are very personal places in our life. So if you're suffering things, you're, it's very unlikely you're going to cry out for help in the beginning. So likely, if the water of trouble is rising in those areas, then it will be up to your neck, really, before you call out for assistance. And we see that many times as people ask us to come and counsel with them. So this basic living is where we see whether the gospel is actually working in our lives. I can pretend to be holy to those around me. I can pretend to be holy, but my wife, my children, even those that I work with on a daily basis, they will see the real me. They're going to see me. They spend time with me. and, And they will see if the light of Christ shines out of me. None of us are perfect in these areas. No one claims to be perfect in these areas, but truth remains that we cannot give these enough attention as these are real life. These things are real life. It is real life. Marriage, family, work. That's real life. That is real life. And if a Satan is going to invade your life, if he's going to come calling and knocking at your door then these are common areas that he's going to attack first. If he's coming, this is where he's going to come to. It is our marriage and family as even our integrity in our occupation that the prince of this world, really, who seeks to destroy the believing man and woman, he's going to come for you in these places. Obviously, destroying the marriage, when you do that, you destroy the marriage you destroy the family. When you destroy the family, then you are destroying the very foundation of the world itself. 
around the world, we're not the only ones that are based on these relationships. Paul, it's not really not by accident, but he goes from describing the, the principles of, of gospel living to the actual practice of that gospel in living it out in our lives. And this is what he's done here in chapter 3. If we can give care, really, if we can give care to these areas as a practice of our Christian life, no doubt that this display that we will have before the world will bear witness of the one who is Lord of our life. If we can give attention to these areas, the world around us is going to see Christ in your life. It is here that the basic building blocks of life, that as the body of Christ, we have the opportunity, really. We have the opportunity to demonstrate the power of Jesus Christ in gospel living. Living out the gospel in our life in these areas is how we demonstrate that Christ truly is Lord of our life. And if we fail, If we fail, then we fail to show the world around us that Jesus can actually make a difference in the lives of his people. And that's what's at stake. That's what's at stake. Paul has written about what is to be taken off in the beginning. He's looked at what is to be put on. I mean, he's told us all of these things. He's, He's telling us we need to bear up in love for one another. We need to be forgiving each other. And and, and love is to be foremost a characteristic of a believer's life. He gave three imperatives that's to be implemented in your daily life when he said, let the peace of Christ rule, umpire in your life. He goes on to say, let the word of Christ dwell richly in in your life. And then his last week, as we looked at this, whatever you do in word or deed, whatever you're doing in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's a profession of all of those things. So now Paul proceeds then to give instruction that will put all of those characteristics to work in your everyday life, to live out the gospel in your everyday life. So let's begin. Let's just look at this quickly as I I read this. Verse 18, wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will lose, they will not lose heart. Slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who are merely men-pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, Fearing the Lord, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. And in verse 1 of chapter 4, Masters, Grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. He begins with this most basic relationship called marriage. Marriage. And as he does that, he starts with the wives. Wives, be subject to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. Now that word subject 
comes from a, 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 a Greek military term that, that means to line up under. It really means to come in line with another's leading. So that's what the, the wife is challenged to do, to come in line with your husband's leading. Paul, ha- having given the principles of Christianity, starts to describe how the family is to work as part of Christian life. And it begins here. It begins right there. Again, this is the proof of the pudding of the profession of Christ. Christian wife, subject yourself to your husband. This is basically what it's saying. Get, come in line. Wives are to be subject. Come in line with the leadership of their husband. Now, this is not an accusation. Many people listen to this and think it's some kind of a Christian's always accusing and putting down women. That's not an exact accusation with that at all. It's not saying that at all. It's not anything about their intelligence or, or their ability to lead. Husbands would do well to listen to your wives, okay? I mean, physiologically, I'm hearing that they actually think with both sides of their brain. I don't, I don't know, you, or whatever. But his husbands would do well to listen to them. But what is being said here is a challenge to the wife. Now, think about this because the gospel, we're talking about the gospel and how it controls your life because the wives submitting to their husband will be an ongoing challenge, really, to their own fleshly nature, okay? To do this is a total act of humility and obedience to the Lord. Uh, Now, Eve's judgment, okay, in, in breaking the law would be that she would desire to have mastery over Adam, but he would rule over her. This is what the Lord said to them. This, along with, with pain and childbirth, would be her judgment and the curse, Submission of a godly woman to their husband will require the power of the Holy Spirit working in their life. It's gonna, it, it requires the, the lordship to the commands of God himself. So Paul states that this is fitting for the Lord. It pertains, this word fitting means it pertains to what he is due. If he is your Lord, then it is fitting that you obey what he has said here. The Lord commands this to be, to be a hierarchy in marriage. Somebody's got to, to call the play. Somebody has got to say, and, and God doesn't leave that by chance. He puts it in play. And believing wives are commanded to give the Lord what is due him by subjecting themselves, coming in line with their husbands. She is to align herself with him, his leadership, because of Christ. It's not that he's the best dude all the time. It's not that he's the smartest fellow all the time. You're doing it because of Christ, because of the relationship with Christ. Considering what he has done for you, obedience is due him. You owe Christ obedience. And as we see throughout Scripture, and as we'll see here as we go on, everyone is subject to somebody. You know, everybody has a boss. Everybody has a boss. I don't care who you are. You have a boss. Wives are subject to the husband. Husbands are actually to be subject to wives, and we're going to see that. Children are subject to fathers and parents. Slaves or workers are subject to masters and bosses. Masters are subject to the Lord always. And really, all creation is subject to the Father. So everybody is subject to somebody. All of this is against our flesh. All of it is against our flesh and the will of this person, but God, he commands 
us to be subject to those that are over us, that he has put over us. And then he actually, actually even enables us to do it with the power of his Holy Spirit. You're not going to do these things alone. When we implement all that Paul has described doctrinally, then this should be a manifestation of the gospel working in our hearts. Wives, come in line with your husband because of the Lord. And then he says, husbands. There's this other part of this command in this marriage covenant. In this this couple involved in this marriage, this, this wife and this husband, he says, husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Love here is just not affection. It's just not affection. But it is a complete sacrificial type of love. I mean, it's the type of love we're talking about. It's a gapeo love, a love that is complete and it's devoted to all the needs of the other person. All the needs of the other person. It's a type of love that Jesus had for believers when he died on the cross. That was agape love. That just wasn't an affection. That wasn't just, you're really just, you know, we're just kind of sort of acquaintances and, you know, come over for dinner kind of thing. It was agape love. It was all complete sacrifice. Paul explained even in, in Ephesians, husbands, love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That is sacrificial love. That is all subjecting love. It goes on in chapter 5. It says, love his own wife even as himself. Even as himself. In other words, love your wife even as you love yourself and even beyond that, sacrificing for her. Love of the husband for the wife subjects all of himself to her. That's what, it's, it's what it's about. It's the same as God's love, but for the husband. God loves you as, as the man involved in this, in this marriage here. And he, you are to love her selflessly. Selflessly. It's subjecting yourself to them. He, her needs before your own. Her care before your own. Yes, she is to come in line with your leadership, but your leadership, you're called in, to lead in such a way that ultimately cares and provides for her needs in every way. That's what this type of love that's being talked about here. And he goes on to say, the second thing he says to the husband, do not embit, be embittered against them. Now, this word embittered means to be angry, uh, exasperated. Don't be exasperated with your wife. Now, again, I know it happens at times. It happens more times than others times. It, it, it happens. We know that it happens at times. And, and, it, and it may be caused by a lot of different things. I mean, there's causes for that in a marriage. So let's not act like there's not things going back and forth in marriage. But Paul states beforehand, don't let it happen. Husbands, don't let it happen. Don't become angry Don't become exasperated with your wife. She doesn't deserve that. You are not to do that. 
You're not to do it. This is a charge, really, as we see what the wife is to do and what the, the husband is. This is a charge for both the wives and the husband to live out before the world that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ works in the marriage. They're both charged here. That it works in this, this marriage covenant. You know, it truly, the, the, the wife and the husband are to be models of the love and compassion of Jesus Christ. That is what you're to be modeling in your marriage. The love of Jesus Christ. The world should be able to look at their marriage and see nothing that the world could truly manifest. There's no way to explain how this works. Other than Christ. Therefore, what? All the glory goes to Christ. And, and parents, and just to aside here, you understand that your marriage is a witness to your children? That to, to, to see how the love of Christ can work? It's, it's a demonstration to them. Your covenant with each other will demonstrate what a covenant with Christ actually looks like. And, and it's just no wonder today there's so many ways that our children get confused when they see how mom and dad treat one another in their covenant relationship. It is tough. It is difficult. But Paul doesn't give you a pass. Christ doesn't give you a pass. In Ephesians, Paul goes to explain that this marriage relationship is even symbolic of the relationship between the Lord Jesus and the church itself. The church is to be subject to Jesus Christ. He is her head. He is her leader. This is Christ's church. Wives and husbands are to submit and to love each other in that same type of thing. And in our marriage, we are to obey him because we love him. It is as unto the Lord. And so look at this, this next group of people, this family life. Paul gives this other group here, family life. He begins with children. Once again, it's the subordinate to another's authority. He, he says, children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Children are a part of the Christian family. There is to be order and hierarchy in the family. I, you need to understand this. There is the hierarchy of the family, and that hierarchy is established by God himself. Today, many families, they get this upside down, and we see it all the time. Parents actually subjecting themselves to their children. We can argue about that, but it, it definitely happens. You see it all the time. What, what you do. Well, I don't want to do that. Where we go to eat, I don't like that place. What church you go to, you know there's no fun there. There just ain't no fun there, and there's not a, a lot of kids there. I don't like that place. So what do they do? They go to the fun place. They go to the fun place. And so you get this thing upside down. That's not what God said. Paul makes a straight-up statement that children are to obey parents. They're to obey parents. It's not in some things, but look what he says there. In what? All things. Now, truly, there's no provision for not obeying unless parents are actually doing something and instructing something that would cause sin against God in that child's life. 
So let's get this straight. I mean, there's a lot of abusive parents that, that do things that cause their, that would be unlawful before God. And so they're exempt in those things. But children truly, in, they learn to relate to authority first from who? Their parents. That's where children learn authority. They learn it from their parents. They learn it from obeying their parents. They're, they're, once again, if parents fail to, to really establish this lesson in authority, then let me just say that the world will surely never be able to, to correct that mistake. Children telling their parents what to do, not learning how to come under any authority will play out in the rest of their life and they will fight through this the rest of their life. I mean, so God has this plan. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things. Uh, Children that desire to be blessed by God will obey God by obeying their parents. He says, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. It's well-pleasing to the Lord. This pleases the Lord. This is the same reason for the wife and the husband as it is for the children. We do this for the Lord. We do this for the Lord. This is for the love of the Lord to glorify Him in your life because of of our union with Christ. We're doing it because we have a relationship with Christ, particularly if this child professes to be a believer, this is to be exhibited in their life by being obedient to their parents. When the parents' directions are difficult, it it may be difficult at times to obey out of regard for them, but why are you to obey? You're to obey them because your relationship with Christ. They're going to tell you things that you don't like. They're going to take note of things that you don't like. But you obey them because of your relationship with Christ. Now, once again, this is the proof of the pudding. Not, it's not how great you are in sports. It's not great you are in academics. But obedience to parents that please him. Again, this is empowered by the Lord. It's against the nature of the child. The child is just like adults. They want to go their own way. And they have to be reined in. It gets definitely against the wave of a culture. It is only because of the gospel in their life, being lived out in their life, that they can do these things. And then he goes on to say, fathers, in verse 21, fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will lose heart. Now, fathers, this here's the deal. You are responsible for the well-being of your children. You're going to stand before God one day and give an account for that. You're responsible for their physical support, but foremost, you're responsible for their spiritual understanding. You need to get it as clear as you can make it to your children about Jesus Christ and the gospel. You you cannot save them, but you are required by God to raise them up in the admonition of the Lord. You are to lead them in the things of the Lord. Therefore, you must communicate the words of the Lord to them. In whatever way you want to do that, you're to communicate the the words of the Lord to them on an ongoing basis. You are to lead them in the things of the Lord so that they will understand how how to, to live a life set of 
part unto the Lord. But it will not matter if you yourself do not live out the Lord in front of them. So it gets right back to the Father again. Are you living out what you're preaching? Are you living what you're teaching? Are you living out these things before a child? Because that child is watching you just like the world is watching you. That child is watching you. They get their lead from you. He says, do not exasperate your children so they will lose heart. In, in, in Ephesians 6, 4, it says this, basically the same. Do not provoke your children to anger. Don't provoke them to anger. That word exasperate or provoke has that same meaning as the warning about the husband not to be embittered with the wife. It's that embitterment, you're not supposed to make your children embittered against you just as you're not to be embittered against your wife. And these are all the kind of the same words that's being used. The fathers are singled out here. And it's 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 common thing. And we know this, and you can take exception to it. But the fathers are singled out here because it's common for fathers to fall into this trap of being overbearing. You know, fathers can fall in this trap of being too restrictive. They can follow the trap of being expecting too much from their children, setting the goal too high. So many times in life, we see parents try to live out their own life with their children. Okay, I couldn't do that, but he's going to do it. You know, I, I, I couldn't play uh, D1 football, but I'm telling you, my son's going to do it. Or, you know, I didn't get a 4.0 in college, but I'm telling you, you're doing it. And we set this bar way too high. And so it's singled out here. It's not by happen chance. Fathers, you're to be the leader of the home. And so you're the one that's most likely to fall into these traps. Paul will even remind us later that, that truly, even as a master, all masters, all bosses have a master that's over you. And that master is God himself. There's a master watching how you, Lord, over your household and your children. And so he says, so they won't lose heart. Don't be this way that they would lose heart. In other words, fathers, don't reign over or lead your children in a way that they would be so discouraged that they would want to give up. Give up on life, give up of pursuing anything in life. And that happens so many times. And truly, this is especially significant in the things of the Lord. You can't be so restrictive, so overbearing in the things of the Lord that all of a sudden, you know, I'm, I'm done with that. As soon as I get out of here, I'm done. And we see this a lot too. We see it, we, we've seen it in this church, we see it in everybody's life. We have these children that are forced to go through all of these things. We don't know why. I don't know why I have to do all this. I'm just having to do it. And then they get in college. And man, it's ollie ollie on free when I get to college. What they don't know won't hurt them. And you see this all the time. Fathers, don't exasperate your children that they would lose hope. Again, what are you modeling for them? What, what are we doing with them? Do they see Christ in you? Is, is his peace ruling in your own life? Is his word living in you 
lavishly, richly? Are, are you doing all in the name of the Lord? Or are you just doing this in the name of, of pride? Parents, are you thinking about those things when you're raising your children? Are you thinking about those things? Paul again gives these examples of how the family is to work when the gospel is working in the family. This is how it's supposed to work. Your family is a representative of Christ's family to the world around you. The neighbors across the street that do not know the Lord, let me tell you, they're watching your family. How does it work in your family? They're looking at you. It's not working in your family? <laughs> I could do that. Those are the things. That's the, if the gospel cannot work in your family, how will it bring a lost person to Christ? It doesn't work for them. What will it do for me? The family is the very foundation of relationships in this world. Wives, mothers, husbands, fathers, children. It's the very foundation of of everything that's going on. Why do you think Satan is so busy to destroy the Christian family today? And he is coming for the Christian family today. It's because that is how you will destroy the Christian witness. You destroy the Christian family. You have destroyed the Christian witness. You can talk about how devoted you are to Christ, but what does that look like in your family? That's what Paul is saying. That's what he is saying here. He, he's giving you how it should look in your life in those first 17. And now he's saying, this is where the rubber hits the road. The proof is in the pudding. Is it working in your family? Then he moves on to another place where we spend a lot of time, work life. Work life. We're called as Christians to live different than the world. The gospel works in all parts of life. Even in the most difficult situations of life, the gospel is there for the believer to work through things in their life. Paul gives this, this final pairing of relationships, and, he, and he, at that time, it's slaves and masters. Now, slavery was part of everyday life in those days. The scripture does not affirm that it was good. It only affirms that it existed. It existed, and there were members of the church in that time that were slaves, and there was members of the church that were masters. And this is how they're supposed to get along. We have the same application of these principles today when we're talking about the, the one who is the, the worker and the one who has a boss over the worker. Okay, It's just really the same relationship. So he starts out slaves. In all things, obey, the, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now, Christian slaves were called to be subject to their masters. There was many people in those days that would suggest that if, if I'm a Christian, I don't need to be under anyone. I'm under the Lord, and I, I need to get out of here, and you would run away. That's not what Paul is saying. That's not what the Lord is saying. To be in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth. It's not just when the master was looking. He says, not with external service as those who merely please men. Now, there's a lot of people who work hard when the boss is around. The boss is around. I, I could tell you many stories about, as a young man, working with men that were, man, they'd be dogging it. You'd be working in a factory. They'd be going along. 
And then, buddy, you better keep your eyes open because when the boss showed up, man, parts started flying and your hands better not be in the way. And you're like, oh my gosh, the boss must be here. That's what he's saying here. Not with external service, not just when the master is looking. You profess to be different when you profess to be a Christian, when you profess to be a believer in the gospel, you profess to be ruled by Jesus Christ. How is that working out in the workplace? That's what Paul is saying. He says, then whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. You are to put your heart into all that you do for your master. Because that's what the Lord expects you to do. That's what he expects you to do. Work can be hard. Work can be frustrating at times. Your master, or in our context today, your boss. You know, he, he may not give you the praise that's due. He may not be grateful for what you do. Uh, he may not regard you at all. But in your heart, Paul is saying, you are not working for them. You're not working for them. You are working for the Lord. You represent the Lord. You represent the Lord. The world is looking at you if you profess Christ. Once again, particularly in the workplace. How do they see your work ethic? How do they see your work ethic? Are you just like the rest? Just enough to get by. Just enough to get by. How do they see your thankfulness to God to even have a job? Are you thankful for that? Are you thankful for that? Do, do they see the Lord Jesus in your attitude towards <clears throat> those that are over you or even those that are under you? Do, do they see Christ in that? He goes on to say, <clears throat> for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. It is not your job or your place to get back at those that are over you. I mean, how many times have you seen this in the workplace, and you're like, I'll fix him. I'll fix him. You know, I'll fix him. I'll not do this right. They won't know. Or... You know, there's some that I'll fix them, you know. They won't miss this. They won't miss this thing. They owe me that. I mean, those are the things that happen in the workplace. It's not your job to get back at those that are over. It's not even your place to judge them. You're not the judge. God said what? Vengeance is mine. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. You are being treated unfairly. God will take care of that one day. He'll take care of it. They get their due. My father and you say, nothing goes over the devil's back that doesn't come back under his belly. I don't really know what that means. All I know, I think that's applicable. And I don't think that was a saying that came from the 14th century either. But the, the reality of it is, they will get their due. They will get what is due them. The question to you and me is, what are you working for? What are you working for? Is it for the money? Is it for prestige? Are you looking for fame? 
Paul states that we, is that we profess to be different than the world, that this is applied to the workplace. It applies to the workplace. He goes on to say, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Let me tell you the answer to the question, why are you working for? I tell you, it needs to be foremost. I'm working for the Lord. It's great I get paid to do that. And you know, a little thank you every once in a while goes a long way. But it's not necessary. I mean, you can work a whole lot. There's people who have done a whole lot of work. There are slaves who died under a terrible tyranny of, of a master that are in heaven today. And they're with the master. Paul is saying, we need to work. We need to manifest Christ in the workplace. And, he, and then he goes on to talk about the masters in, in, in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Masters, grant to your slave justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Slaves is to work as unto the Lord, but masters, the boss needs to have an understanding that they too are subject to the Lord. They too are subject to the Lord. I mean, you may have, there are people here that may have people working for them. You, the Lord, is watching you. You too have a master in heaven. Both slave and masters answer to the same master. They both answer to the same master. And, and truly, remember this when you're really serving over another. How does Christ treat you? Are are you leading as Christ would? Are, are you treating them as you would desire to be treated? Would you do this if Christ was there with you? No matter what your rank is, your master is in heaven. Your master is in heaven. It doesn't matter which categories, all these things that we've listed here, these three categories, our master is in heaven. And yet, oh, most of this, all of this is against the grain of our physical flesh. It's against the grain. We want to our way. We want to do it our way. We want things our way. But Paul said, if the gospel is in you, then you need to do it God's way. So just bringing all this to a point, the application of the gospel in these various parts of your life, whether it's marriage, whether it's family, it's work, it, it, it needs to be there. The gospel needs to be the, 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 the one characteristic that's, that comes out of this, that it needs to be visible in your life. I mean, I've already said a confusion in children today are largely due to the wife and the husband not manifesting the Lord Jesus in the home. The parents not acting like parents the, the children are a gift to you. They're on loan to you. You know, not loving each other with the love of Christ, not loving their children enough to guide them and correct them in the admonition of the Lord. Christians are called to put on love for each other in, in, in whatever way that, that is manifested. And this is what that, the unifying bond is in all of these relationships. But foremost, it's the love of the Lord. That's the driving force of all of these things. Christians are to live 
out what they profess, in other words. Live out what you profess. If you profess Christ, if you name the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life, regardless of who you are, whether you're old or whether you're young, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, whether you're a servant or whether you're a master, should demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ and it should manifest the gospel. If that's what you name, that's what you ought to look like. In all of these relationships, it is our Father, it is our Lord Jesus, it is the Holy Spirit that empowers us and guides us in these situations. We must not forget his teachings. We must apply them in our daily lives. And even as we come this evening to the Lord's table, we must remember the sacrifice that was made for you. Our lives is to be lived in gratitude for that sacrifice. Not selfishly being a consumer, but, but with a servant's heart. And that's how we're to live. Remembering that, you know, it was costly to purchase your salvation. And you know, really how little a request it is to live out this short period of eternity in this world. Depicting the love of Christ in relation to all that he has promised to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you, dear God. Thank you for such a word of encouragement you have this evening to all of us. All of us in some way are participants in these groups that, that your servant Paul has listed here, whether it would be marriage, whether it be a family, whether it would be work. And all of these things, Father, through the power of your Holy Spirit, we are to be manifesting what the gospel has done in our lives, that when people will look at us and desire you. Father, thank you for such an encouragement tonight. Thank you for the gospel that you've given to us. Thank you for the Savior that you have provided to us. And it's his blessed name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.